Hello, and welcome to, this is episode 7 of um, the uh, third book, Birth of the Three, the uh, prequel, um, titled Life Before the Alien Magic. Um, let's begin. The residents from all the villages up and down the Aix River Valley forgot their grievances and their animosities. They had all been summoned to come here to the village of Rule by men from the Northwood named, named Chiron, Peck Merle and Unge, both from the village of Golden Bridal, were there, together with King Chase, King of the Wuktu. They were joined by a wizard named Toad. Chase insisted an alliance with King Sosha and the Half-Elves is not in the future for humanity. No, we must ally with the Elves. As many as 3,000 men, women, and children assembled in the village square. What is this about? queried one village elder. Why have we been brought together? I demand to know, insisted another village elder. We, all of us, must know. The last time we were, all of us, brought together was when an army of trolls had entered three of our villages along the river and seized 24 children. Do you mean to say there are trolls that threaten us all over again? Or something far worse? Charon assured the nervous villagers, No, no trolls are not the threat. They are not. But there is a threat. A threat to all those peace-loving people up and down the aches. Who might that be? queried a third elder. We have no one to fear. Not unless they carry a wand and speak enchantments or call the Northwood home. Charon frowned. What if I told you the plans of the half-elves? There was a general murmur among the villagers. What's this you say? We have had a peace with the half-elves for a century, ever since their defeat in the War of the Races. There has been no alarm. There is no cause why the humans would pick up weapons and strike out at the half-elves. They respect us. They want what we want, land to till, houses over our heads, a world without hostilities, a place where we don't have to answer to the frightful elves. You know what we think. You call the Northwood home. The Northwood has always fought to subdue and break the good, humble, honest people. Why have you come this far east, to the Aches? We know why. It is because you have poisoned all your relationships with people in the West. Not one of those beyond the Lukaks have any interest in entering into any kind of conflict against a quiet, hard-working, peace-loving peoples like the half-breeds. Have you heard of what happened at Copperwheel? queried the wizard Toad. The humans looked at one another in stupefied silence. What are you saying? My sister lives in Copperwheel. Copperwheel was some... was some... Copperwheel was some nine months ago now. Have the people of the Northwood made another enemy? Not surprising. Copperwheel is no more, attested Perkmurl. The half-elves have destroyed it and everyone within it. And so saying, Charon reached in his bag and produced a dagger with a bloody thumbprint with a burnt tip. Copperwheel has died. Every last one of the people who called the village home slain. I don't understand, acknowledged Greg, shaking his head, his curly locks dancing. 
Carpoil had nothing worth fighting and dying for. Only lovely children and courageous men and noble women. Nothing, certainly, the half-elves would deem worthy of killing for. There is one thing, one thing that Copperwheel possesses, one thing the half-elves perceived as a threat, one thing Copperwheel fought to protect and died for, to a man. King Chase argued, let me tell you, Copperwheel, some figured, had to die. To die because it contained a secret. The people died to keep the child safe until the appointed time. A future king, one that will end war between elves and half-breeds and men, the king that could not be revealed until now, after the devastating defeat of the elves, and a new nation born of the ashes, the king of the Wuktu, the king of the Abyssine, a king that promises peace and long living and well-being for all, for humans like myself, like you and the elves, who are being tested and the half-breeds, who know only pain and shame and terror now. You are Wukdu here, as are those people of the North Wood. That is why I chose to come to you first. What source of woe is this? asked the village elder. What threat is there? Would the half-breeds risk war with humans over this Wukdu king? Who might this be? asked Terrace. A child of red hair and blue eyes? Certainly not one of our own children from among the aches, insisted Glig. The red hair and the blue eyes is a characteristic of a boy born of foreign stock. A threat. Chase chuckled. You are foolish. You are certainly not of the Wutu stock. Glig removed his sword, and anticipating the boy's moves and considering his attack, how best to counter his advances, rushed at the boy. Everyone stepped back and watched as the boy and the town elders squared off. What should we do? We must do something, insisted Friend. We do nothing, answered Poe. If he is one we must fear, one even the half-elves despise, we watch this play out. What is, what is your name? asked Chase, of Friend, as the Wukdu boy and the village elder Glig squared off. Glig danced and thrust his, out his blade, a well-choreographed series of moves, complemented by what would normally be deft, lethal attacks with a blade, but Chase was well-schooled in the art of parlaying. Each move he met solidly, introducing a move that opened up his opponent to a series of well-orchestrated attacks. My name, asked the village elder, gripping the hilt of his blade tight. Don't give it to him, insisted Terrace. Think of the company he keeps, witches and wizards. He wants your name so that he can enchant you. Never trust a magic wielder. Less trustworthy they are than half-elves. I don't, I don't see a coward, acknowledged Chase. I see a brave man, braver and most worthy. Are you not a brave man? Are you not worthy? Terrace and Poe and Glig stared down Fren, but the young village leader refused to be intimidated. My name? My name, the, fu the one future king of the Dragonbread? is friend. I beg you, please, have mercy on us. The race of men that is to come, the brave future race of men, we are not worthy to be compared to. You do not know what I see in you. Swallowing and offering a tremulous smile, friend turned his blade toward himself and tossed it in cha it chase's way. 
The team deftly seized it out of midair. Retrieving the weapon, the boy eyed the, the next combatant and circled the village elder Glig. The boy employed both blades, carving and slicing the air, demonstrating such skill and tact that Glig took two steps back. So, you are the one prophesied, prophesied about, eh? Glig began stomping and, and prance unceremoniously around the boy like a show horse. He skewered the air with his blade at the boy and scowled. You will slay us, all for the sake of your own race. I know that. We all know that. The fate of Copperwheel? That fate will befall us all. Best to have you slain. Really? You fear Wukdu? Have you once met a Wukdu? The question stupefied Glig. He peered intently into the boy's eyes, then at his fellow villagers. Have you once met a Wukdu? asked the boy again. It's not a difficult enough question to answer, is it? The boy's two blades caught the failing sunlight. Both weapons reflected off differently. One was a crimson red, as if the sword were stained with blood. The other shone like gold, engaging and entrancing those unlucky enough to fall under its spell. No, snorted Glig. He drove his sword forward, driving, working the space between them, as if digging a trench, purposefully defeating whatever defenses encumbering him and stood to prevent his success. But Chase quickly identified the attack, returned the swipe with a thrust, defeating the move. A breathless elder swore, Anyone associated with you, that's Wukdu, an ugly belligerent, Wukdu. Chase shrugged, You may be Wukdu, you may not. What do you say to that? Are you Wukdu? Glig scowled. I don't have red hair or blue eyes. I don't have wi I don't have wizards as friends, neither elves. I'm not Wukdu. I ain't sunk that low. And Glig jumped and jabbed his blade at the boy once again. But Chase wove his way, turning his body, spinning, dodging to his left. He connected with the slashing sword and with an intense ringing, drove his blade forcefully skyward, then disarmed Glig. The elder's sword shot upward, landing twenty yards away, stabbing forcibly into the muck. The teen boy knelt and swept his muddy foot beneath Glig. The village elder dropped to the ground. Chase landed on top of the writhing man, his knees pinning the man down. The elder was not so indistinguishable from the muck. Was it because of the man's lack of character, stubborn fear, and bigotry? The boy, through clenched teeth, asked, So, who is that? that who is it that determines who it is, Wukdu, and who is not? Is it you? I would not. I wouldn't condemn a man to such a fate. I would not. Chase, breathing hard, studied Glig for the longest time. How would you save your life, Mr. Glig? I don't know, the man replied dully. You tell me. My life is in your hands. You tell me. Finally, he confirmed, no, you are right. You are not Wukdu. And with that said, Chase took his weapon and lined it up with the elder's heart. He put his weight into it, driving it down. Quietly, life seeped from out of Glig's body. With Glig dead, the other villagers were visibly grievous and distressed and tittered fretfully. 
The boy seemed to chase each breath that escaped, like little rodents running hither and thither. What will you do with us? demanded the boy Ross. We don't have dragon blood running through our veins. Will you kill each last one of us? What do you say? asked Chase. He climbed to his feet and, walking around, surveying the villagers, he asked, Are you Wuktu, or are you not? Are you like those, all those persons of the village copper wheel who are slain, or are you something else? The teen king approached Friend, clutching the sword. He paused, then winked and squeezed his upper arm. He turned the weapon and offered the village elder his weapon his weapon back. Friend silently licked his lips and looked, and took his blade and returned it to his scabbard. Friend smiled. He fought back tears, gulping down sobs, retching and seizing. He replied, I am one of yours, my king. I am Wuktu, through and through. Chase navigated his way among the frozen, silent pillars that were the villagers. He challenged each and every one, looking most defeated and humbled, testing each like a weapon. What if I told you all that yesterday the Wukdu nation did not exist? Men, women, children, what if I told you that tomorrow the Wukdu live here among all of you? The victors, the pride of all humanity, the greatest nation that will ever be throughout the history of the Abyssinians. Devon smiled. He lowered his gaze and hobbled painfully, then knelt before the teen. He then withdrew his sword and laid it at the king's feet. I am among the first of your subjects, attested the soldier. Stand up, commanded the king firmly, and the boy offered the man his hand, and Devon awkwardly, with difficulty, climbed to his feet. Yes, Chase confirmed, smiling broadly. There was a tinge of grief, a look of desperation, which waned like a silver moon behind the clouds. Yes, you are the first, the first of my kingdom, the first of the nation Wukdu. But that distinction comes at a price, sad but true. Chase placed his two hands on the shoulders of his first recruit and squeezed tight, taking root like twisted, resilient trees older than all other life in the Abyssinian. Slowly and solemnly, Dejected, seventeen of the twenty-five most proven village elders followed the lead of their friend and, and fellow warrior Devon. Well, asked the boy of those villagers who refused to stand with King Chase, who clung to one another as if besieged by sweeping floodwaters, it is a bad decision, I assure you, to choose not to side with me. With us, I understand. Family is a powerful bond, a greater threat than any army. Something in itself that must be defeated, it is true. The world is a big place, stated the optimistic boy Wren. He navigated the difficult, rocky places where love created the greatest of obstacles. He chipped his and hammered his way between mother and daughter and said, You don't need us as a part of your nation. You don't. We can go our own way, pick up our lives a million miles from here. You won't ever come across us ever again, not during your rule, not during your son's rule, or your son's sons. What do you say, my brethren? asked King Chase, withdrawing, searching, then landing, and provoking. 
He descended upon Friend and sunk his talons in and stood for the longest time looking his first recruit in the eye. What do you say? He asked the man. What will your actions be, soldier of the Wuktu, sworn to victory, determined to establish the greatest nation throughout the Abyssin? Friend did not hesitate. He looked over his king's shoulder at the family that refused to side with Chase and the new, young, resolute nation of the Wuktu. He withdrew his blade, then, with a shout, he rushed upon the villagers. He descended upon the mother, shouted out a curse, and landed a blow. The blade cut both equally as bad. The attacker fell to his knees, the wind taken from him, dizzy, his bell rung. He looked at the veil that had descended upon those who would not join the fledgling Wuktu. Those that, not fifteen minutes before, he considered his closest family. Marked they were, like coins made of lead, marred and scarred, ugly and without value, strangers to redemption. Friend wept as the abject villagers uttered a common cry as the mother's head departed her body and landed in the soil. It is costly to refuse your king, asserted Friend, wiping the stinging tears from his face. Make the choice, the only choice you're allowed. Join us, become Wukdu, or join the people that fell at Commonweal, the first victims of our war of ascension. There is no third choice. The people of the Aches stood at a foreign place, at a crossroads, the base of the stair where soldiers left simple adulthood and became heroes. The boy, Ren, looked at the stalwart work do, then back at his family members. It is the only choice we must make, swore the boy. None of us will survive the night if we don't. Ren slumped his shoulders. Then, his head lowered, he slid a hand from the back of his father and his sister, then deserted the hesitant, troubled members of his family, crossed the line, and joined the assemblage of the new Wukdu warriors. The last of the villagers drifted, siding with the new young nation, until one girl, Liza, remained, and King Chase swooped in, picked her up, and without a shout carried her back among his own. You, my child, Liza, will be my first lieutenant. And King Chase approached each and every, one, every new troop. He placed his head to theirs, gripped them by the neck, and smiled, looking each intently in the eye. Yes, each one of his nation of the Wutu would be like these common folk, peasant, no one of consequence, proving themselves in battle, becoming something unseen in the Abyssin prior to tomorrow. Each one of these would excel in battle. They would vie to be his second-in-command, would vie to be God. The strength of the greatest nation that ever was was that each carried the weight of the entire world on his shoulders. Each did not fight for family or for Wutu. He fought for his own reign. They would all of them endeavor to take their king's life. That was what it was to be a Wutu. One of them would succeed. That person wouldn't know it for a long time. He would suffer travails all his life until he finally came to that realization that Lisa would 
be the one to kill Chase's wife and child. King Chase could not kill her. For the sake of the Wukdu nation, he would need her alive. The firstborn among the elves, the purest, privileged, arrogant, and most jealously guarded number of the Fullbloods, some two hundred in number, had congregated in the one alcove of the first forest, spotted like an enormous toad amidst the vibrant, ever-clawing flowers, red and yellow, with fibrous teeth as defenses, opening and biting in a lush green bowl, a place smelling of and illuminated by the most delightful of plant life. Since creation itself, this geographical peculiarity was identified as the one and only place where elves could congregate and speak openly without fear of their words being heard by all the other elves throughout the first forest and the Abyssine. The elves, the only elves that matter, the firstborn, are under attack, contended Elf Putter. We would be best served to annihilate the leadership of, the, of those lesser full-bloods born of the elven womb. We were wrong not to assert our leadership over their kind. What do we do? queried Perry, committed to the secret place known only to those elves where they wrote the course of events that had been and were and were to come. It will cost more, and for what? The elves, the firstborn, will have to fight only once to assert their rule. That is now. I know what we must do, swore Elf Payne. whose own seed occupied an island three weeks' journey across the sea, studded with precocious, jubilant, resilient beings closely related to elves, though not entirely so, dictating how life must be. We bring the firstborn from across the sea. We attack. There's no defeating us. Not we who have demonstrated our unparalleled skill on the battlefield. When we and our brethren... Those elves who recognize our authority march together and fight together. The elves will win back the Abyssin and assert their dominance over the peoples here, as should be. Elf Panzig opened his mouth, sucking in the sweet air, as if it were his first precious breath. Every word was purchased, and the other elves became most attentive. What does it mean to be an elf? It is written under every rock and on every blade of grass and spoken by every moving stream. We must not surrender the Abyssin. The Abyssin is ours. It must be as it always was, belonging to the firstborn. Do you think so? demanded Rigor. All the firstborn elves turned as flowers opening up to the rain. A frightful figure towered over them from his place on the lip of the bowl. The world of the Abyssin is not enough for all the elves, not enough for the firstborn. It is passing from night into day. It will belong to a new race, a race worthy of me, as the father they had lost. Immediately, thirty-two sapling elves, their pliable skin studded with gems that reflected icy rivers and tree sap and fruit nectar, materialized around the bull. They circled all the powerful elder elves confined to the depression, the same conditions isolated to the bowl, which allowed for the murder of the elven gods more than 2,000 years previous, now threatened the firstborn elves confined within with extermination. Their magical abilities had been stripped of them. Rigor, the god, navigated the lip of the bowl 
both a waterfall and a pillar of flame, he arrogantly and menacingly played on the uncommon fear of being now vulnerable, stripping away the thick hide, here the blood beating on the dull surface. We must take the war to those vulgar elves born of the elven women. The firstborn could hear the song on the wind, the song of arrow on bowstring, errant, discordant, then, all of a sudden, resonating, strong, invincible. Leave not one firstborn alive, commanded rigor of the sapling archers, and he turned his back as the elves that he acknowledged as gods and brothers not minutes before had ceased to be. There came a tempest at the very center of the depression, a chewing mouth passing through those beings defiant and invincible entered unto death, ashen gray, without breath, stones denied faces, denied their everlasting will and love, the only thing standing in rigor's way as the sole ruler of the Abyssin had been done away with. Rigor grimaced. The Abyssin might have been have benefited from the presence, the eternal vigilance and guardianship of the eldest elves of the firstborn, but it was time for a new world. He turned to Algernon. Are you ready for the world that is to come? A line of elven kings, his own seed, and the womb of an elven bride. Not muddied by the presence, the suffocating congregation of the firstborn, his own voice doing away with the punishing dictatorship of one common voice and one common mind. The elves that were not the firstborn and were now confined to the first forest would see their forest burn around them. Algernon, without batting an eye, replied, Are you? No. There would be one race of elves, one that was a departure from those born at the dawn of time, finally destroyed for their complicity in the murder of the seven elven gods. His choice of elves would govern the half-elves, and humanity would be enslaved. There would be one race of superior beings in the end, the saplings, the last line of the elves, and one elven god, alone, master over all the Abyssin. That concludes chef episode 7 of Birth of the Three, and I um, uh, will... Um, present episode eight um next week uh i hope you enjoy this and thanks for listening i appreciate it bye now